Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, September 2nd, 2011. Oh yeah, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse has posted a new song. It's like Christmas in September, I'm telling you. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And we try to have a little bit of fun along the way, because uh, if you don't laugh, you're going to cry. I mean, there's so many just absurd things being said about God that um, I can't believe anybody with... Uh, at least a junior high education is not capable of uh, the the critical thinking skills necessary to realize. You know, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. It's as if you know that the the mandatory thing nowadays with you know with everybody's chasing after their own spiritual experiences is that the brain gets turned off and anything anybody says as long as it produces some kind of a liver shiver or some kind of a, a experiential result is tolerated to the point where. Um, We've got a whole bunch of flat-out charlatans in the church, just flat-out uh, con artists of the criminal stripe. Uh, that, that's about the only way I could put it. But anyway, okay, so it's Friday. We've made it to the end of the uh, to the end of the week, and um, well, uh, here's the deal. A week from today, I am going to be in Elk River, Minnesota. And uh, and uh, going to be uh, delivering a lecture at the high school that's right across the street from the Crossing Church, entitled "Double Crossed by the Crossing Church." Uh, the uh, The event starts at six thirty. It's free, and uh, and so uh, you know anybody in the area is welcome to come. And uh, the topic is going to be um, Eric Dykstra. I'm going to basically as- answer the question: uh, Has Eric Dykstra really? received a vision from God to do church the way he's doing it for the unchurched? Or does he fall under uh, the, the biblical category known as false prophet? And I will be providing the biblical uh, evidence as well as the evidence from what uh, Dykstra is teaching from his uh, stage there at the uh, the crossing. And, um, yeah, and uh, so, you know, but the goal, I, I, want, I want you all to know this, that the goal of this event is kind of twofold. Primary, uh, the primary goal is that Eric Dykstra will repent. 
he's a false prophet and he's a false teacher. He twists the Bible. He doesn't know how to rightly handle it, that he would repent and be forgiven. That is the primary, primary uh, goal. Secondary goal um, uh, is uh, with the idea that if Dykstra doesn't repent, confess that he's been, he hasn't been properly handling God's word, confess that he hasn't been teaching the truth and that what he's doing, is, I mean, that he, is, that he didn't receive a vision from God and that you know, if he doesn't come to that uh, point, that the people in Elk River, Minnesota would be, um, let's just say, equipped with a good biblical argument and the evidence and the resources to be able to warn their neighbors in mass not to uh, not to respond to this man's marketing antics, to not attend this church, because uh, because he's you know he really is a wolf at this point, and he's manipulative and he's controlling. He's far more like a cult leader than he is a Christian pastor. That um, you know that the 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 folks there in Elk River Minnesota would love their neighbors enough to not uh you know to not sit idly by and quietly as their as their friends and family are being deceived by this guy so uh, pr- please be praying uh you know to those ends uh, as uh, we get ready for next week so let me tell you about the schedule for next week next week monday is uh labor day and I will be taking the day off to spend with my family. So there will be a best of on Monday, uh, Labor Day. And uh, and then there will be new editions of Fighting for the Faith Tuesday through Friday. Friday we will do our light edition. I'll record that ahead of time uh, so that uh, there's something in the hopper for um, the program on Friday. So um, And then uh, just so you know, we are recording the audio of the event, and I will make that available uh, for download, um, as well as uh, be putting up a page at uh, Pirate Christian Radio uh, that has uh, resources for people to listen to, download, read, and, uh, and digest and understand uh, what it is that they're facing uh, with their Eric Dykstra. So be p- praying to that end. All right, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Well, we have a William Tapley update. We have a William Tapley update. It has been a while since... William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse, has updated his uh, his YouTube channel, and well, he um, well now he's done it, and uh, <laughs> and all I can say is okay. And it, the the weird part about this is that there's a follow up to the thing that he's posted on his YouTube channel that yeah I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but um, I'm going to have to break it to. Uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse, that um, the um, the comment that he's um, so in, in emphatic about warning the world about and and questioning as to whether or not it's, it's really a sign from God, uh, that would be Comet Elenin. Um, there's a news story from one of the latest astronomical uh, websites that, uh, um, well, you'll just have to read it. I'll read it to you, but... Um, we've got a Cindy Jacobs update, and um, boy, this is weird. <laughs> Cindy Jacobs, her and her husband, uh, Mike, have a um, a television show. And <laughs> again, <laughs> I don't know what it is with these new apostolic Reformation folk, uh, you know, the Dominionists, because uh, Cindy Jacobs is part of that Dominionist crowd. Um I I don't understand how it is that these guys take things that m- most sane people would see as negatives and and somehow spin them into a positive. What I mean by that is is that Cindy Cindy Jacobs and her husband Mike have a television 
program entitled God Knows. <laughs> you just can't make this stuff up. It's, I mean, it's, God Knows. So that's the name of their uh, their television program. Because here's the deal. I mean, the way I was brought up, the the, the phrase God Knows is, is that's kind of negative. It's pejorative. It's not something you say is a positive thing. And so I think that's just an appropriate name for Sidney Jacobs' television program because God only knows what on earth she's talking about. And so I'm going to be playing uh, audio from uh, her television show where she claims that Christians can take authority over the weather. Uh, Her and her husband are um waxing eloquent about this concept that uh, that um, the 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 weather uh phenomena have hit biblical proportions and well their claim is is that well that's because sin in the world has hit biblical proportions right there's 7 billion sinners on the planet now and, and not the least of whom are Cindy Jacobs and her husband Mike anyway uh, so we're going to be listening to that uh Cindy Jacobs also has received a word from God about um a possible nuclear disaster in the United States. I have to pass that along. Um, and then I've got an emergent update. This, well, let's see. Do I want to do the Juanita Bynum thing? I, I, here's the deal. I may not be doing this in this order. I've got I've got the Juanita Bynum story that I didn't get to the other day That um, where she typed something on Facebook in supposedly tongues and it just came out in gibberish, which as far as I'm concerned is, you know, is documentary proof that that ain't no language. But... Um, anyway, uh, so we'll be taking a look at that. I've got a, a news story regarding um, a conference that's going to be held next May uh, that seeks to nurture and teach young children and youths, uh, basically catechize them into Brian McLaren's new kind of Christianity. I'm not making this up, so I'll be passing that along. Um, time permitting, I've got an Albert Muller article that I want to read entitled, Is God a Problem? Is God a problem? Apparently, uh, that's kind of an important thing to be asking nowadays. Is God a problem? And then our sermon review, um, we're going to be going back down to Frisco, Texas to Elevate Life Church. Pastor Keith Kraft has recently preached a sermon entitled Ridiculous. Um, It's been a while since we've heard from Keith Kraft. I think the last time I played one of his sermons uh, was um, the Mariachi Trench episode of Fighting for the Faith, which, by the way, the Mariachi Trench episode of Fighting for the Faith is one of my all-time favorites. That is one of my all-time favorite editions of Fighting for the Faith. If um, you know, if anybody ever asked me to put down a top ten list of the top ten episodes of Fighting for the Faith, and, and they want to put put that somewhere in the top ten, would be the Mariachi Trench episode. Just want to let you all know. So, all right. With that, we're going to uh, dive into the program proper. Right? Patriotic, patriotic, slam, fight, right, like 
It's the end of the world as we know it. Mm-hmm. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, that's right. That's um, our update music for William Tapley, which we haven't been able to play for a while because William Tapley has been on hiatus. Now, if you have access to the Internet, I invite you to go to William Tapley's YouTube channel. You can find it at youtube.com forward slash third eagle books. And he looks very solemn in this video. Um, um, and <laughs> he's taken some time to um, create a very interesting um, art. I don't even know the style of this art, but uh, some kind of weird artistic backdrop. He's playing his Casio. Um, it, it may be a wooded area with these um, things behind him, but worth looking at. I mean, he's he's a, he's a very gifted artistic guy in that sense. Um, he's great presentation on his artwork, by the way. Great presentation. Um, but uh, the last few videos that he's done, he's been really kind of digging deep into this whole common Elenin thing. You know, wanting to know if it's really the hand of God that it's this, you know, he was, he's he's of the opinion that the common Elenin was going to be a, a comet that, we're, that is going to pass so close to the earth we're going to be able to see it during the day. I mean, and so that he, he really thought this would be some kind of a, a sign from God. So... Um, the name of this song by William Tapley, the latest in his musical um, offerings to the world, um, is entitled The Ballad of Common, Comet Elenin. Uh, h- here we go. friend or a sign from God that we're near the end. Elenin, you're the wrath of God. If we don't repent, we'll be hammered hard. (laughs) Elenin is the wrath of God, and if we don't repent, we're going to be hammered hard by uh, Comet Elenin. Scripture says that the kings will hide, but the ones who are saved will be Jesus' bride. Rich elite hope to hide in caves. Read your Bible, friend, they will not be saved. Rich and strong kings and slaves try to hide in their dumb caves. We must get right with God, Elenin. You are not a fraud. Now, on his previous videos, he made a big deal about the fact that major news outlets hadn't been covering this important prophetic story, you know, and and so, you know... um, it's true, by the way. Elenin was de- is definitely not a fraud. It's a comet that's go- that well was supposed to come close to the planet. But let me continue with this very somber ballad of uh, a comet Elenin.
melanin prophesies the end, but you'd never guess watching CNN. Kings and princes, the rich and strong, think they're earthquake-proof. They are oh so wrong. When the sky rolls back like a scroll, God reveals to all what is in their souls. We believers have not to fear, but the world's elite know their end is near. Shooting stars, meteors like unripe figs, they will fall when the sixth seals unsealed all fine ending to that ballad what a fine 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 ending um yeah the the problem um is um well from the sky and telescope uh, website you can find this at skyandtelescope.com um the headline reads comet elenin self-destructs i am not making that up um poor third eagle of the apocalypse i apparently if he had just waited another day um he would have seen this tragic story about uh, this this comet that was supposed to be the the the, the sign, the thing that was going to uh, let us know that doom and gloom was coming soon. Um, uh, it well, it's it's um the comet has self destructed. Yeah, well, let me read um, from the um, Sky and Telescope magazine uh, on the internet, skyandtelescope.com. Um, comet Elenin self destructs. Whenever astronomers discover a comet headed inbound toward a close encounter with the sun, there's always buzz among observers about how bright it might get. That was certainly the case last December when Comet Elenin, otherwise known as C-2010X1, made its debut. Many hoped it would become easily visible to the unaided eye as it rounded the perihelion nine months later. By April, that initial enthusiasm had waned a bit as it became clear that common, Comet Elenin was small and intrinsically faint. The keys uh, to its peak visibility were the uh, closeness it would eventually have to the sun on September 10th uh, um, and, an earthbound, and, and to Earth in mid-October. Um, in fact, amateur obs- observations through July and early August suggested that this interloper might even be ahead of schedule. Brightness-wise, the hearts of comet observers everywhere raced a little faster. Now all bets are off. Within the past week, the comet's brightness has declined by 50%, dropping a half-magnitude between August 19th and 20th. And according to Australian observer Michael Matiazzo, the comet's current location in the western Virgo, makes it virtually unobservable from the northern latitudes. Worse images show Comet Elenin's bright core becoming elongated and diffuse. The telltale signs that its icy nucleus has either broken in two or disintegrated altogether. Oh, how sad. Um... One veteran comet um, watcher who's not surprised by John is John Bortle. Four months ago, based on Elenin's performance to that point, he cautioned the comet may be intrinsically a bit too faint to even survive the perihelion passage. And his words have proved, uh, well, 
prescient as the uh, fading continues. Estimates are near ninth magnitude. There's speculation that this object or its remains might not be around even much longer. I guess all these pseudoscientific bloggers who predicted planet-altering encounters with a cosmic visitor bright enough to be seen in broad daylight will just have to find something else to worry about. So there you have it. It's just absolutely sad. Um, oh, Comet Elenin, we, we barely knew you. And, uh, and here we were expecting you to be the harbinger of death and destruction, the end of the world, uh, the third eagle of the apocalypse, really hung his prophetic hat on you and and you've let him down by self-destructing what just absolutely sad We'll never know now that Elenin has self-destructed. Um, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Rich elite hope to hide in caves. Read your Bible, friend. They will not be saved. Rich and strong kings and slaves try to hide in their dumb caves. We must get right. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... (laughs) You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God... Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel... You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally... We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife. I love my kids. And I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. 
It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Oh, man. Poor William Tapley. Warning, if you think God's told you that you're the co-prophet of the end times, <laughs> yeah, yeah, go see a pastor and have that thing exorcised. Yeah, you, you don't want to be listening to that voice. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. That's right. They're friendly and they're yellow. Uh, one says donate. Yeah, this is join our crew. The uh, join our crew button. It's it's a, it, you're signing up to automatically contribute six dollars ninety five cents on a monthly basis to the ongoing work and uh, mission of this important radio outreach. Of course, if you would like to uh, specify the amount uh, that you would like to uh, contribute to our cause, if you would, uh, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or uh, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to. P.O. Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Chief, what do you want to do tonight? Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. That's right. This means we're going to be doing a Dominionist update. This is new. New Apostolic Reformation has got this Dominionist thing just dripping in it, this idea that we're supposed to take over the world, capture the seven mountains of something. By the way, as I pointed out on yesterday's edition of Fighting for the Faith, the seven mountains is not a, is not a favorable biblical imagery. Uh, <laughs> these folks in the New Apostolic Reformation have got to learn that there's certain, there's certain images that are bad and there are certain images that are good. There are certain symbols that represent Christ and certain symbols that represent, well, the devil. 
and, uh, and the seven mountains. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that does that's not good. No, that that represents that's the sign of like false religion, the devil, the whore of Babylon, things like that. In fact, you know, kind of as a bonus here, I'm going to be playing some um, of uh, Cindy Jacobs and her husband waxing eloquent, saying that Christians can take authority over the weather. I think, yeah, that's all part of this dominionist thing. But Rick Joyner apparently is all bent out of shape um, because he's concerned that uh, that Muslims are trying to <laughs> capture. <laughs> Captured the seven mountains. Yeah, listen in. Here, here. There were 20,000 Bolsheviks that took over Russia. Yeah. A nation of million. Bolshevik means minority. And they thought one of their greatest advantages was to be thought of for a long time so small they couldn't do anything. Why am I, like, doubting that that's what the word Bolshevik means? I should probably Google it. But this is just a bonus thing. So he, this is Rick Joyner. Uh, he's about to... T- <laughs> Tell us that uh, the Muslims are trying to capture the seven mountains. <laughs> Listen. To this. Until they gain the authority, the influence. And for most Christians who are, I think, virtually most Christians are today familiar with the teaching that Lance Wall now has spread all over the, wor- the world on the seven mountain strategy. The seven mountains being the major power centers of influence in the world and infiltrating these pe- centers of influence. The Muslim Brotherhood has especially used that strategy. I'm speaking in terms as Christians would understand from this teaching. They have used that strategy brilliantly and for over half a century in our nation have gained, you know, tremendous influence. Centers of are found in high levels in the centers of influence in our nation. They're influencing everything from our textbooks to what comes out on our news, and we don't realize it. And we don't realize it. So there you go. The Muslims are trying to capture the seven mountains. Um, Let them have it. <laughs> it's bad. The seven mountains are bad. Read Revelation 7. Let the Muslims have it. That Well, actually, they're probably already camping right there in the seven mountains. <sighs> anyway, so, <laughs> just, anyway, so uh, here is Cindy and her, Mike, uh, and her husband, Mike, from the, their television program called God Knows, I, you can't make this stuff up. This is that's really the name of their television program. But they're just listen. It just gets crazy. It, I don't even know what to say about this stuff. Here, reasons we need the prophetic stretching and moving into a new understanding today because we're having articles written. For, in fact, at the same same time. Newsweek magazine, and when we were in Korea, said, weather panic, this is the new normal. Hmm. And the article says something very interesting. It says, it says, all over the world, worldwide, the litany of weather's extremes has reached biblical proportions. Biblical. Biblical proportions. But what they don't understand is the reason that the, the disasters are reaching biblical proportions is because sin has reached biblical proportions. Well, now, now I, I would I would agree to a point, and and here's the deal: the 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 creation is subject to frustration as a result of our sin. There's seven billion sinners on the planet now. I mean, that that's a lot of sinners. There 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 be a whole lot of sinning going on. But see, the thing is, it's not your individual sin or my individual sin that's causing this. It's collectively we're all sinners together, and so. Um, so, I mean, just with this kind of reasoning, it makes me wonder, well, if we went on a, you know, 
a sin uh, a sin decreasing initiative if we were to go out and and convince everybody on planet earth all 7 billion sinners to sin 10% less than they're already sinning do you think the weather situation would improve any um yeah, this is just really by the way um the 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 thing we're supposed to be proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Because here's the deal. Every single sinner that is brought to repentance and faith in Christ, every single one of their sins, every single one of them is covered by the righteousness of Christ, has been propitiated and atoned for by the shed blood of Christ. Um, so, um, I mean, I've been, see, but here's the deal. I mean, I don't want to buy into this idea that somehow mathematically, numerically, or whatever, it's just... Eventually, God's going to say enough is enough, and you know, and in in some senses, you can say that weather uh, forces are a judgment of God. You can say that, but it, it's hard to pin it down to a, a specific person. Instead, you basically have to say this is a result of our collective sin and rebellion against God. But uh, listen to um, now where this goes because it's going to get weird. Yeah, we see this in the Book of Joel. Yes, where the locusts came in. And the Lord was saying, because of what you've done, the locusts are coming. It's a judgment. But if you'll call a solemn assembly, fast yeah. and pray, you know, it will pass over. Of course, as Christians, we're not subject to that. I mean, in other words, we can take authority over the weather. We are free. <laughs> oh, man. We could take authority over the weather. So. Here's the deal. If God's sending a, a judgmental, uh, you know, a judgment um, weather event to, to your neck of the woods, for instance, like, you know, apparently I mean, Christians, uh, it, while the Joplin tornado was going on uh, earlier this year, could have just walked right outside and taken authority over that tornado and made sure to send it to their neighbor's house and have it skip over theirs. Or, serious? I mean, seriously, Christians can take authority over the weather. You got any verses for that, Cindy? I mean, every time this woman opens her mouth, I mean, God knows what on earth she's talking about. And by the way, that's the name of her program, God Knows. Um, how is it that somebody that's this dense, that this is this biblically illiterate and obtuse, um, get, gets a, a television program? And, uh, ay, 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 I mean, sir, I, I'm beginning to think that Cindy Jacobs and her husband are, are a judgment from God against the uh, the United States and the world for their sin. Um yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Anyway, um you know, and then also as a just throw it in as a bonus. Uh apparently the uh, Cindy Jacobs has heard that uh that the United States is due for a nuclear type uh, meltdown rea uh, reactor meltdown just like Japan had. Yeah. Yeah, here here um listen. I had a word about America when I was watching Japan that the thing that happened there was going to try to happen here in some kind of... The thing that happened there was going to try to happen here. What kind of language is that? So the thing that happened there, uh, the uh, the the cataclysmic uh, nine-point-something earthquake and tsunami-slash-nuclear meltdown afterwards and all, it, it's going to try to happen here. So just want to let you know, it's trying to happen here, according to her. I don't know, what does this language even mean? We continue. I think that would happen if we keep trying to divide Israel, uh -huh. if oh, we keep, God. you know, the kind of oh. stuff we've you been know, doing, the, the that, that it would be nuclear. Fire. Why would we want to? No. 
<sighs> I, I I just don't think she's heard from God. I just don't think she's heard anything from God. Not a word. Um, yeah, because the thing that tr- that happened in Japan is going to try to happen here, and uh, you know, and it's going to be nuclear. <sighs> Somebody take away her microphone, please. All right, M- uh, moving along. <laughs> Emergent postmodern philharmonic orchestra. Those who have been set free from the bounds of narrowly defined notage are now just feeling the spirit of, of music flowing from out of them. <sighs> oh, yes, don't you feel closer to God after hearing that? Yeah, that's, sorry, I had to. Turn that off. My ears were going to explode. Anyway, uh, from the uh, Associated Baptist Press website, uh, an article written by Bob Allen entitled Conference Seeks to Nurture Children, Youth, in New Kind of Christianity. Dateline, Washington. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is among sponsors of a four-day meeting next May to discuss ways to train up children and youth in a, quote, new kind of Christianity, scheduled for May 7th through the 10th, 2012, at Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. The Children, Youth, and a New Kind of Christianity Conference will bring leaders, ministers, volunteers, parents, and students together for dialogue, for a conversation, apparently, about the spiritual formation of children and youth in the emergent or missional church. Nationally known presenters include progressive evangelical social activists like Brian McLaren, Tony Campolo, Jim Wallace, alongside children's and youth ministry experts such as Ivy Beckwith, Joyce uh, Bellos, uh, Amy Dolan, and uh, Michael Novelli. Uh, McLaren, the author of books including A New Kind of Christianity, said in a promotional video that his travel that in his travels he's heard a recurring theme that new forms of ministry, worship, and community taking root and growing around the world are not being transmitted effectively to children and youth. Quote, we are going into a revolution in the way we do church and the way we understand and practice the Christian faith, a revolution that's changing the lives of so many adults, especially young adults. But then we go down and we're still using old off-the-shelf curricula for children, McLaren said. We're creating problems for youth and young adults, McLaren said. They are going to keep replicating some of the struggles of the last couple of generations. Planners said presenters will talk not only about innovative practices and vital issues, but also controversial topics like violence, racism, interfaith dialogue, and sexuality. Program personalities include Jeremiah Wright, former pastor Barack, uh, to, to Barack Obama, who as a presidential candidate resigned his membership at Chicago's Trinity United Church of Christ over controversial remarks by the now uh, emeritus pastor. Presented by Emergent Village, Woodlake Books, Virginia Theological Seminary, and Calvary Baptist Church, sponsors include the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Uh, Dave Sisnos, and chair of the uh, conference's planning committee, said that along with the event sponsorship by the National CBF, the CBF of Virginia, will sponsor an opening reception. So, uh, yeah, those of you out there who think the emergent church is going away, yeah, no, they're they're not going away, like, at all. Um, in fact, what they really, really, really want to do 
is rewrite all of the um, Sunday school curricula and the youth group uh, curricula so that it's it, it's um it's updated with this new Christianity 2.0. It's not really Christianity because you can't there's no such thing as Christianity 2.0, but it's the new kind of Christianity. And see they're not effectively passing on this new Christianity that isn't Christianity at all to the youths and so they're going to be um <clears throat> focusing on how to send your children to hell. So there you go. I mean, wow. Um, yeah, pray that their um, efforts um, come to a crashing halt because now they're going to be sending children to hell. And what did Jesus say? That it would be better for you if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than if you were to lead one of his little ones astray. So, yeah, just something to think about. Something to consider. All right, from the Christian Post, headline reads, Televangelist Juanita Bynum raises brows with tongues prayer on Facebook. You want to know what tongues looks like? Uh, go to this. Go to ChristianPost.com and uh, you're, you're going to see for yourself this really isn't an, a, a language. No, it's just gibberish. Anyway, the story, this is written by Nicola, uh, Nicola Menzi of the Christian Post, and here's what it says. Pentecostal televangelist and self-professed prophetess Juanita Bynum has sparked curiosity among some Internet users in the Christian community for several comments on the minister's Facebook page where she appears to type in tongues. Mm-hmm. In a series of posts published on August 17th on one of Bynum's many Facebook pages, the minister typed messages where it was believed by commenters and critics that she was praying in tongues. In the first message, timestamp 3.57 p.m., it appeared that Juanita Bynum II, the account holder for the Facebook page, started praying for Zachary Timms, the Florida megachurch minister who was found dead in a New York City hotel room on August 12th. Here's what she wrote. God, we pray for the Destiny Church family. We pray for the strength of Pastor Reva Timms. Mighty God, give us strength. We are the body that feels this pain we all feel it. Cover the minds of his children. Grab them up in your arms, Lord Jesus. Be a comfort to them. You are the many-breasted one. The what? The, the, um, hmm. Seems like Juanita Bynum is confusing Jesus with the uh, Greek deity Artemis. Um, yeah, Artemis was the, um, <clears throat> Uh, of the Ephesians, by the way, uh, Artemis of the Ephesians. She she had a, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, a temple built to her in the city of Ephesus. Uh, there's not much of it, in fact, hardly anything. There's all like just a couple of columns now, and there's a stork that uh, builds a nest on the column. Anyway, um, Artemis, if you've seen photographs of uh, the so-called deity Art Artemis, she definitely was the many-breasted one, not Jesus. Boy, this is bad. Anyway, uh, the prayer continued in a second post with the same timestamp. You are the rock and the shield, the anchor. Ward off all the vultures uh, who will come, uh, come for greedy gain and not be concerned about the people who are hurting in that church. Send them help, Father. Send them spiritual help that would help to heal them and restore their legs in you, God. In the third post, published a minute later, the tongues text started to appear. Gird them up in the spirit. Give them a mind to pray like never before. We call on you, Jesus. You are our help and our hope. 
You are the, you are hope. You, God, are our help and our hope. Our hope is in you, Father, our strength for such a time as this. Yeah, okay, yeah. So, by the way, if you want to see this, I mean, there's no way that's a language. There's, there's, those aren't even words. Anyway, several prayer posts with intelligible spellings continued to appear, and visitors to Biden's Facebook page began questioning the text. Biden's prayer posts soon caught the attention of the media, with one reporter at a spirituality and faith website spec- uh, speculating that the minister was communicating in tongues. On one prayer post, uh, Pastor Cindy McCraw, uh, I'm sorry, visitor Cindy McCraw commented expressing her agreement, I believe it's tongues, uh, the Holy Spirit, it's called praying in the Spirit, McCraw. No, that's not praying in the spirit. That's just gibberish. And another visitor to the page expressed disbelief. Are you typing in tongues or are my eyes playing tricks on me? Questioned Damita Stargell. Since the prayer posts have appeared, visitors have been debating whether it was possible for a Christian to write or type in tongues since the Bible only depicts those inspired by the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. Yeah, and actually tongues is a gift to speak a language that you don't you do didn't grow up with, you didn't know. So for me, you know, if God were to give me the gift of tongues, then maybe I can simulcast in Spanish, but it would actually be a legitimate language. Anyway, um here's quote, I'm not sure about typing in tongues, guys. Keep praying though. But let not let's not type in tongues. That's not even biblical, wrote Jeremiah Gibbons, adding the hashtag quote all in love and in the end of his at the end of his comment. Other visitors to Biden's Facebook page were calling for the inexplicable text to be translated and for Pentecostal minister to address the speculation that she was typing in tongues. Well, there you go. I mean, if she was really, truly exercising the gift of tongues, it's absolutely biblical to demand that she give a, a translation of the tongues or interpret it because that's what the Bible says. Anyway, um, one guy said, God did not tell her, uh, tell her to type in tongues. I think... Every sane spiritual person knows this to be true. An explanation slash interpretation should really be made in order for the confusion and ruckus to cease, wrote Kishka Lori Penna. Penna continued, Dr. Bynum, I think you should defend yourself. If the spirit fell so hard on you that you lost control of your typing, just say so. Too many people are being led astray in false teaching and doctrine in a time when pure and sincere relationship with our Heavenly Father is necessary, and I'm saddened by all these posts. The Christian Post called Dr. Juanita Bynum, Ministries Tuesday had asked for a comment regarding the controversial prayer post. A message was taken, uh, but uh, Christian Post was informed by a receptionist that it was unclear if anyone had intended to return the call. Bynum's prayer posts have attracted more than 2,000 likes and hundreds of supporting comments. On the Dr. Juanita Bynum Ministries website, the minister has described is described as an international empowerment lecturer, recording artist, author, conference host, and entrepreneur. Bynum's, whose ministry is based in Atlanta, Georgia, gained the attention of the mainstream media in 2007, when her then-husband, Thomas Weeks III, pleaded guilty to physically assaulting her in a hotel parking lot. <sighs> weird story. Weird story. All right, now for something, like, way better. <clears throat> From the albertmuller.com website, the headline reads, Is God a Problem? Modern Theology Faces Its Alternatives. Thank God we're going to anchor the, this hour with something sane. <clears throat> Dr. Muller writes, um, The Christian century, the venerable voice of liberal Protestantism, juxtaposed two significant obituaries in its August 23, 2011 edition. And both of the same, both on the same page, the 
magazine published a respectful obituary of evangelical titan John R.W. Stott, identifying him as a, quote, renowned and prolific author credited with shaping 20th century evangelical Christianity. After reviewing his 90 years of life and ministry, the magazine quoted S. Douglas Birdsall of the Lausanne movement, who described Stott in this way, quote, The church was his great love. World evangelism was his passion. Scripture was his authority. Heaven was his hope. Now it's his home. The magazine's other obituary marked the death of Gordon Kaufman, a professor of theology at the Harvard Divinity School for more than three decades, who died at the age of 86. Kaufman, the magazine reported, quote, had a profound influence on on rethinking theology in naturalistic terms, arguing for a vision of God as the profound mystery of creativity. Kaufman influenced generations of liberal theologians through his writings and teachings, serving as the president of both the American Theological Society and the American Academy of Religion. As a seminary student, I was assigned to read Kaufman's 1972 work entitled God the Problem, a book that set forth Kaufman's efforts to bring Christian theology in line with modern thought. A frustrated seminary student in my class posted a sarcastic cartoon on the classroom wall with the cover of Kaufman's book, changed from God the Problem by Gordon Kaufman to Gordon Kaufman the Problem by God. Uh, The book is nothing less than a treatise of purely secular theology. The entire concept of God, he wrote, is problematical to men in many different senses and ways. As he explained, quote, For the Judeo-Christian tradition, God has been the primary and fundamental reality with reference to which all of life, indeed, all of creation was oriented and understood to our modern empirical, secular, and pragmatic temper. However, it has seemed increasingly dubious ever since the Enlightenment whether it is necessary or even reasonable to believe in such a transcendent reality. Human life can be adequately understood as an emergent form, uh, emergent from evolving nature, and the meaning of human existence can be found in the cultural values produced by man's creative genius and the social interaction of which love is the profoundest form. It's, it's not talk about God simply a vestige of earlier stages of man's historical development, which, however, appropriate and necessary in its own time is no longer relevant or useful in ours. Kaufman argued that an entire array of intellectual problems made belief in a personal God impossible on modern terms. However, beings now consider themselves autonomous and belief in God raises serious problems for man's sense of moral autonomy. He went so far as to argue that belief in God might be, quote, in itself morally dubious. On the other hand, even the most secular among us have had a hard time letting go of God entirely. Modern humanity cannot believe in the God of the Bible, he insisted, but we still require some intellectual referent that can be called God. Kaufman's answer to this problem was to construct a notion of God as a symbol, having rejected the idea of a God who objectively exists or a personal God who engages in creatures, uh, engages as creatures. Kaufman argued that the Human imagination is the proper source for a doctrine of God. Devising a naturalistic doctrine of God was just practical, Kaufman argued, since human beings seem to need a God as a referent. Human, humans should just construct a symbolic reality to meet their need for moral validation in the sense that life is meaningful. Of course, those who construct a concept of God as mere symbol know that they are doing so and their references to God are more poetic than anything else. Some of Kaufman's theological colleagues criticized his use of the word God in this, in this sense as confusing and understandably so. If God is nothing more than a construction of the human imagination, then why use the word at all? 
In one of his latest books, God, Mystery, Diversity, Kaufman took a shot at conservative Christian theologians. Here's what he said. Conservatives may still wish to maintain that it is possible and necessary to give an authoritative and binding definition of Christian beliefs and praxis and that theologians should proceed on that basis, but such positions express a kind of romanticism about how things used to be. History has moved Christian faith beyond that sort of possibility. Willy-nilly theologies alert to their own historical uh, situatedness can no longer proceed easily on such assumptions. Theologians can no longer take it for granted that there is a fixed body of beliefs simply to be interpreted and explained. On the contrary, a major task for theologians today is to ascertain just what beliefs and concepts inherited from tradition are still viable and to determine in what ways they should be reconstructed so they will continue to serve human intellectual and religious needs. Oh, man, talk about hubris. <clears throat> Dr. Muller continues, he says, This is where the revisionist methodology of the liberal theology inevitably leads. Doctrines are no longer considered to be true statements of fact, but only reflections of human intellectual and religious needs. Since these needs are supposedly changing over time, doctrines must change as well. God is just a symbol, and doctrines are symbolic as well. In their own ways, Gordon Kaufman and John Stott represent the stark alternatives that face the Christian theologian today. Will we either embrace a theology established upon the knowledge of the self-revealing God of the Bible, or will we see theology as a project to be developed by the human imagination? We will choose between the affirmation of the triune God of the Bible or the claim that God is merely a symbol. In other words, the obituaries of Gordon Kaufman and John Stott represent more than footnotes in Christian history. These were men who represented two very different and irreconcilable understandings of God, theology, and the Christian faith. Their obituaries may have been published side by side, but in the truest sense, Gordon Kaufman and John Stott were never, ever on the same page. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, that's right. And it's, folks, liberal theology is absolutely demonic. That's the only. I, that's the most charitable thing I could say about it. If you really think that Christian theology is some kind of a project that needs to be updated and revised every with every subsequent generation that continues on this planet, then you've got another thing coming. Because Jesus Christ Himself said to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What God has revealed in the scriptures, the Christian faith, the doctrines and theology of the Christian religion have been revealed once for all. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. And men like Kaufman and his other theological buddies like McLaren and others, they're just dead wrong. They're feeding people poison. Their God doesn't exist, whereas the God that we believe in and confess in Christianity, he does exist. And how do we know this? Because he was raised from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Liberal theology is a cesspool. Liberal theology is a pipe dream. Liberal theology has its origin in the imagination and minds of human beings, not in what God has revealed about himself in actual human history. You can take that one to the bank. All right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, 
Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of the sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. It's Friday afternoon. We're going to be going down to Frisco, Texas. It's been a while since I reviewed a sermon uh, from this church. I think the last one we did was... uh, from the Mariachi Trench episode. Let's cue up the music first. Hey, ho! Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Elevate Life Church, Frisco, Texas. Keith Craft presiding. Uh, The name of the sermon? Ridiculous. Let's see if it fits the bill. I'm pretty sure that it will. Uh, Keith Kraft, by the way, is the inventor of the Mariachi Trench. And remember that the number 11 is the uh, number of destruction and incompleteness. That's stuff that he's taught in the past. Let's see if he's uh, 
gotten any better with his handling of the biblical text if he preaches about Christ and what Christ has done for us, or if he just strings together a, um, well, a string of ridiculous statements. Let's find out. All right, let's kill the music. So without any further ado, here is Keith Craft from Elevate Life Church, Ridiculous. The new device called the Ornithopter. His first car. He called it a quadricycle. Hey! Not sure what the music has to do with the sermon, but it's part of it, so... Doing the white man overbite. watching all around the world we love you and y'all stay standing just for a minute stay right there don't do anything yeah you heard that right he said over ten thousand people watching on the world wide web why i have no idea this guy doesn't um he doesn't speak coherently he doesn't preach coherently he maybe the reason why is because he preaches to um <clears throat> scratch itching ears I, just just the theory i'm working on i gotta go do something hang on one second hold on i'll be back Hang on just a second. Hey, y'all. Hi. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, they're standing up in there. Come on, y'all. You've got to stand up, get a little energy going here. Thank y'all for being here. We love you very much. Okay, I'm coming back. I thought I was going to preach from the lobby, but they weren't excited enough. So, all right. Okay, hey, love somebody, hug somebody, kiss somebody if it's, well, if it's appropriate. Woo! Is anybody ready to get ridiculous? No. That wasn't good enough. Anybody ready to get ridiculous? No. Okay, let's start with a couple of pictures. Take a look at this. This is 23 years ago. That's Tad Tomaseski. The totally awesome... Must be family photo album time rather than preaching from the Bible time. Okay. Dude, you ever heard of Max Headroom? That was him. Got barbell in one hand and Dr. Pepper in the other hand, which he never has drank in his whole life. It gets worse, though. How about the next picture? Would somebody please say, that's ridiculous. That was our first service in 2000. You might think that was the 80s. That was not the 80s. That was January 9th, 2000, on my 40th birthday. I literally, I promise this is true, I woke up in the middle of the night last night, and I said to Sheila, why did you let me have that mullet? I can't get that picture out of my head. It's ridiculous, and I'm growing it back. Okay. Go to the next picture. That's Sheila and I. 420. Apparently, Keith missed the memo there in the Bible, uh, in the pastoral epistles, that the job of the pastor is to preach the word. Apparently, 
Uh, he's got more important things to be doing, which is kind of ridiculous, don't you think? 23 months ago, yesterday, 423 months ago, she said, I'll go steady with you. We celebrated 423 months ago yesterday. And right here on stage, I gave her some flowers, called her up here. And uh, I'll just honor her today. But thanks for the 423 months. That was our first date. She asked me to that dance. That was a dance. Sadie Hawkins dance. I don't know if you noticed the puka shells. Um, Anyway, it was pretty extreme right there. That's pretty ridiculous. Now, I want to just point out one thing in the picture besides Sheila's Sadie Hawkins top there. Um, I, I, I (laughs) I wanted to point out her hand. Now, for those of you who are ladies, how many of you ladies have ever done any kind of cheerleading, anything like that? That is the cheerleading hand. That is, we're going to take a picture. Okay. And that's the truth. Just prim and proper. I just love that. Anyway, she hates that picture. I love that picture. I weighed 165 pounds in that picture, Sheila. That's ridiculous. Anyway, so we're talking about ridiculous. Take a look at your notes. I want to start with some definitions. Ridiculous. It means absurd. It means preposterous. It means unreasonable. It means inviting ridicule. It means mockery. Wow. Let's be ridiculous. Uh, It literally means putting yourself in a situation to be judged because of abnormal behavior. I'm so glad you're at our church. I mean, nobody in their right mind wants to be ridiculed. Nobody, I mean, that's even, you know, we're talking about going back to school. That's one of the greatest fears when you go to school is you don't want to, you don't want to stand out so that people ridicule you. That would be ridiculous. But that is the Webster's definition for ridiculous. But I I couldn't stop there because I knew what I meant by ridiculous. And I knew what I felt like God gave me a word as it being a ridiculous word. I felt like God gave me a word. Apparently the word was ridiculous. Why would God give him a word when we have the Bible? Isn't his job to preach the word as it's been handed down to us? Word. And so I went to the Urban Dictionary. It gets better. Something that is unbelievable in way, shape, or form, an event worthy of memory. Everybody say ridiculous. And then, since in our church, and here's what I want to tell you, we have preschool here. How many in our preschool? 250 students? 200. We now have a charter school sanctioned by the Texas State Board of Education that will start here tomorrow, a public school on our facility. We'll have 250 students, uh, so we'll have 200 preschoolers, 250 Students that are elementary age up to fourth grade. Is that right? We have our leadership college now. This is all on campus. All right, so what am I saying to say that? So far, he's preaching totally about, well, just, well, themselves. They're preaching, he's preaching about them. He's not preaching about Christ. He's preaching about himself and this church and all the wonderful things they are doing, but not Christ and him crucified for our sins and the wonderful things that he has done for us. That's kind of ridiculous, don't you think? Uh, that, that I decided that since we go from all the way from preschool to college, we need to have our own dictionary. It's time for us to start making up some words <laughs> or at least put a new spin on some words. So let's, uh, let's take a look at the Elevate Life Dictionary definition for ridiculous. 
Something that is unbelievable that becomes believable with elevated thinking. Something that... Mm, So he's making up his own definitions now. Isn't that really postmodern? Forget what the dictionary says. Let's just make up our own definitions. And he's not going to, um, well, uh, go to the biblical text to, uh, you know, to say that this is what the Bible teaches ridiculous is, as if that's really what we're supposed to be preaching. Anyway... No, he's just going to make up his own stuff. So let's continue now with this exercise in ridiculousness. It is impossible that becomes possible with elevated being. Something that is unachievable that becomes achievable with elevated doing. And most of you know, and you're following me, and if you haven't been here, you just need to know we teach in a systematic way. I, I get to, I have the privilege of speaking corporately uh, many times throughout the year. In fact, this week I spoke to the Raytheon Corporation. Raytheon, for those of you that don't know. Oh, that's not good. Raytheon is one of the major defense contractors here in the United States. The fact that he spoke to them, well, that's problematic. It means that things might go crazy there at Raytheon, and you never know. They, they, if things go crazy there at Raytheon, the government might have to step in. No, is that one of the largest uh, defense, military defense companies. They build systems, $15 billion company, that we had a privilege to speak to them this, this week, to their engineers and systems analysts. It was crazy. In fact, I thought, what am I doing here? These, it was hurting my brain just being in the same room with these people. I mean, they've developed what's called the exoskeleton. For those of you who don't know, it's one of the top 50 inventions on the cover of Time magazine this last year. The exoskeleton is the avatar technology that you saw in the movie. It's the guy that crawls inside the robot and it becomes a weapon. They've developed that. That isn't just movie technology. That's real stuff. So on and on I could go. I, we walked through Raytheon. And it was pretty amazing. Keela was with me. And I said, so what level of security is that? Because there were vaults. Literally like we would have doors on most of the buildings we go in. There's vaults for doors. I mean, crazy stuff. So anyway, we were in there talking to them about this, this thought process. And this is what I want to encourage you with. Everybody say, think, be, do. So, Brother, here we go again with uh, Keith Kraft's famous statement, think, be, do, as if that's sound biblical doctrine and the point of what the scriptures teach. Good night. Everything in life boils down to that to that process. How you think is how you be. How you be is is what you'll do. And so your think, be, do equals your have. In other words, it goes everything that you have in life, the kind of marriage you have. The- your think, be, do equals your have. Really? You got any passages that say anything remotely approaching that? The kind of finances you have, the kind of relationships that you have, the kind of job that you have, whatever you've taken ownership of that you have goes back to your thought process, the way that you are and what you're doing. And so when we're giving you this definition, I just want you to... By the way, this is nothing more than the word faith movement, uh, you know, word faith heresy, at least a form of it. You know, if, if you want to know what the world, word faith heresy kind of sounds like, remember that movie, the, uh, not the movie, the, but the book, The Secret? Yeah, you know, the, the, the law of attraction. Yeah, that's basically what this is with some kind of uh, biblical veneer put over it to make it look like it's actually what the Bible teaches and what the whole Bible's about and what the Bible's trying to get at. But the Bible's not trying to get at any of this think-be-do stuff. Nor does the Bible teach about the number 11 being the number of uh, incompleteness and destruction, nor does the Bible say anything about the mariachi trench. You see that. We're talking about your ridiculous when what's unbelievable becomes believable because of the way you think. You're ridiculous when something that was impossible becomes possible because of how you be or how you are.
You're ridiculous when something is unachievable, but it becomes achievable because of what you do. And then we can synopsize it, my word there, a way of thinking, being, and doing life that brings about miraculous transformation that makes history. Oh, bro. Now, total delusions of grandeur. You need to have, you got to do the, apply the think be do method to your life so that the miraculous can happen and you can make history. Oh, good night. Um, um, Keith, the point of the scripture is that God has made history. Uh, you heard of the whole death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the history we're called to preach. We're not, to, in fact, nowhere in the scriptures does it say think be do so that you can make history. This is just, you know, inflating egos and basically teaching a form of megalomania. Um, but it's not teaching what the Bible teaches. So God wants us to think, be, and do in such a way that we bring about miraculous transformation, miraculous change. How many of you got some things in your life that you'd like a little miraculousness added to it so it could change for the better? Okay, this is the power that God's given us by being ridiculous. Now listen to this in your notes. You will never live in the ridiculous. Why do you, if, by the way, and I'll come back to that, but... I, I believe that God's given me a word, and the word is this, that when you live... <laughs> Uh-oh, he's not preaching from the Bible again. He's pre He thinks God's given him a word. Yeah, I, I'm like 100% certain it wasn't God that gave it to him because he's not actually preaching what the Bible teaches. In the ridiculous, you open the door for the miraculous. And that's why we need to have a definition, a proper definition of what ridiculous is. Because if we live in that, then we open the door for the miraculous. So, so, again, so that's the key to the miraculous is that you have to live in the ridiculous. Because if you don't live in the ridiculous, you can't even open the door to the miraculous. And then you can't make history and everybody won't, nobody will pay attention to you and say, oh, wow, look how important he is. Again, we're thinking about what is that? Well, you'll never live in the ridiculous if normal is okay with you. See, a lot of people, normal's okay. They, they just want normal. They want a normal marriage. They want a normal life. They want Everybody wants normal until it comes to money. And then everybody wants to get abnormal. Do I have a witness? But you see, the truth is, is that it's not about money or anything else. It's about God. It's about understanding that God hasn't called you to be normal. He's called you to be super normal. You got a verse on uh, that says that God has called me to be super normal because I can point you to passages where it cl clearly says, "Husbands, uh, you know, love your wives; wives, love your husbands; um, children, obey your parents; work quietly with your hands and make a living." I, I can tell you, I can point you to all the passages in the Scripture that admonish us to well, the normal, the ordinary, the mundane. You know, to cleaning houses, to making meals, to wiping poopy bottoms and cleaning and cleaning diapers and taking care of snotty noses and things of that nature. You know, the standard mundane stuff, you know, make a, you know, work quietly with your hands, make a living, you know, provide for yourself and, and, and a little extra for the, uh, the poor and the needy. So that seems pretty ordinary to me. I don't see anything in the scriptures that points us to the think be do uh, theology so that we can live in the extraordinary supernatural by being ridiculous. I mean, here he's making just all of these assertions without any biblical passages to support any of them. So you'll never live in the ridiculous if the desire to fit in is stronger than your desire to make a difference. And I would just say that to all the students as you go back to school. Don't desire to fit in, desire to make a difference. And you'll be, you'll be ridiculous. 
You'll never live in the ridiculous if you want your life to be risk-free. It's just going to cost you something. No matter what you do, it's going to cost your time. It's going to cost your talent. It's going to cost your treasure. It's going to cost your heart sometimes. It's going to cost you giving your love. It's going to cost you being broken at times. You'll never live in the ridiculous if you're scared of what other people might think. And don't we all struggle with that from time to time? Why do I want to live in the ridiculous? Uh, The Bible doesn't tell me to do that. You'll never live in the ridiculous if reaching your God-given potential just seems too hard. You can know that you're living in the ridiculous if, well, in fact, our old friend Jeff Foxworthy would say it like this. You might be living in the ridiculous if you believe in God. So when we say ridiculous, what are we talking about? You might be living in the ridiculous if you believe in God in this world today. In fact, a God that created the world from nothing, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You qualify for ridiculous if you believe that. Does anybody hear? Uh, By the way, I believe that. I believe that God created the world, the whole universe, and everything you see. He did it in six days, spoken into existence, six literal days. That's what I think the Bible teaches, and I think that's what Jesus taught, and I think that's that's why I believe it. Um, But what on earth is he talking about? Now we're just basically, you know, we're going to, you know, beat on the uh, creation drum in order to somehow prove that the Bible wants us to be ridiculous. I believe that. In other words, I believe in God. I believe in God in a world that doesn't believe in God. I believe that God created the world from nothing. That's ridiculous. In fact, you might be ridiculous if you don't believe in the eternal static universe or the steady state model theory. You say, what are those? Well, the second is what Einstein believed before he knew better. You might be ridiculous if you don't believe in the Big Bang theory or the new three theories that have now blown up the Big Bang theory. But yet, we're still going to be taught that in our education system. You might be living in the ridiculous if you believe with man things are impossible, but with God all things are possible to them that believe. If that's you, say, I'm ridiculous. Come on, come on. If you believe you didn't evolve from an ape, but you believe you're a son or daughter of God created in the image of God, supernaturally endowed to do what he does, you might be ridiculous. You might be ridiculous if you believe you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible says in Psalms 139, verse 13 to 14, David said, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I did some etymology. I did some some exegesis. I did some Hebrew stuff on that word fearfully, and I find out that it means ridiculous. I am ridiculously and wonderfully made. How awesome is that? You are ridiculously wonderful. In fact, let me give you a new word. You're ridiculous awesome. Some of you are just. Man, this is. Why on any. Why on earth would anybody wake up on a Sunday morning and pack the kids into the car and drive to church to listen to this nonsense? I mean, ridiculoco. Some of you are ridiculous tards because of what you believe. 
some of y'all have ridiculitis, man. You know what that is? You just live in the ridiculous because you believe God can do anything. God can do everything. Whatever you have need of, God is well able to do it. You just believe that. Why is it that we are ridiculous if we believe that? Well, God is trying to show us some things in the natural because for everything in the natural, there's always a supernatural correlation. The things that- Where'd you get that from? Good night. I mean, <clears throat> the phrase rolling your own theology and smoking it is what's coming to mind here. This guy's rolling his own theology. And I think it, 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 it may be a hallucinogenic theology. That are unseen are made manifest by the things that are seen. So let's look at some ridiculous human facts. It's on the back of your notes there. The human brain. You plan on getting to the Bible anytime, Keith? Seriously? I mean, here you've got thrown all these slogans out and, you know, ridiculous and ridiculoco and all that kind of stuff. Um, and now we're going to spend time looking at facts regarding humankind. Um, your job, Pastor Kraft, is to preach the word. Stop talking about yourself and stop, John, just to hear your own voice and open up God's word and actually read it and teach what it really says. I don't think you're capable of it, which is kind of ridiculous. Don't you think that somebody would make you know tolerate this guy as their pastor when he clearly doesn't even meet even the remotest qualifications uh, to be a pastor, considering the fact that the Bible makes it clear that the pastor has to study and show himself approved as a workman who doesn't need to blush with embarrassment, but can rightly handle God's word. Apparently, that little, um, you know, part of the job requirement wasn't considered when Keith Kraft became a pastor. Sell. Everybody say sell can hold five times as much information as an Encyclopedia Britannica or any other encyclopedia for that matter. Scientists have yet to settle on a definitive amount, but the storage capacity of the brain in electronic terms is thought to be between three or even one thousand terabytes. Let's put that in perspective. The National Archives of Britain containing over 900 years of history only takes 70 terabytes, making your brain's memory power ridiculoco. Ridiculoco. It's even hard to say. One human hair can support just one hair up to 3.5 ounces. The acid in your stomach is strong enough to dissolve razor blades. Some of you thought you were in trouble. Hey, this is some great stuff for if you're going to be in a, a trivial pursuit contest. Uh, this has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches, by the way. You're good. The surface area of a human lung is equal to that of a tennis court. Scientists have counted over 500 different liver functions. Some of you are real glad about that. I love this one. During your lifetime, you will produce enough saliva to fill two swimming pools. I found that out the first time Sheila kissed me in that picture. Man, did not need to hear that. Did I say something wrong? I go, what was that? She goes, that's the way you kiss, baby. And I go, okay. Nobody ever taught me that. Be my teacher. Anyway. The largest cell in the human body is the female egg, and the smallest is the male sperm. Man, I hope you get that. I just hope you, that's all I'm going to say. I just hope you get that. 
The largest cell in the body is a female egg. And the smallest cell is a male sperm. What's the point? God wants us to realize some natural, supernatural correlations. It really, I'm sure you'll go ahead and make those correlations for us, even though the Bible doesn't make any of them. It doesn't matter how big something is or how small something is. When God gets involved, there's miraculous results. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. And God wants us to understand that. A baby acquires fingerprints at the age of three months. Fingerprints are one of the first things to fully develop and one of the last things to disappear after death. And I've taught you this over and over. We're, we're just about, I, I, I hate to even say this because it's almost like me saying we're almost finished with our building. But we really are almost finished with our building. We're going to be moving in in a couple of months. It's going to happen. Come on, everybody said amen. But we, we got a call from my literary agent this week in my 1% Factor book. It's almost, we're, we're almost there. We just got to... Keith Craft has a literary agent? Good night. Could you imagine having to edit what this guy writes? Good. I mean, oh, man. Person probably deserves a purple heart. i to change a few more things. That's after seven changes. So I've been teaching you this, though, that you have a fingerprint that nobody else has to leave an imprint that nobody else can leave. Nobody in the history of the world has ever had your fingerprint, and nobody in the future ever will. God is literally marked. Yeah, that's not exactly comforting since the primary use of fingerprints has to do with identifying people who've committed crimes. You on the end of your hands with his glory. He stamped you with his glory. And it's one of the first things to develop and one of the last things to disappear after you die. Isn't that amazing? It's ridiculous. I want to invite you to live in the ridiculous. I want the next few weeks for us to go on a journey together because the only thing that opens the door for the miraculous is living in the ridiculous. So the oh, this works righteousness. The all and what a weird form of righteousness. The only thing that opens the door to the miraculous is living in the ridiculous. Oh, talk about a weird quid pro quo. So, you know, someone's doing something really ridiculous, and you ask that person, what are you doing? That's ridiculous. And they go, well, I'm trying to open the door to the miraculous. It's what my pastor said I needed to do if I wanted to see a miracle. You want to take that person aside and maybe even take them down to your local mental health clinic and have them examined. Good night. Some people never get a miracle in their life because they're not ridiculous enough. Yes, God. Yeah, that's the standard. See, uh, God, God's just waiting in heaven going, when are these people going to get it through their heads? I'm not going to give them a miracle until they get ridiculous enough. Uh, God is well able to do it, but he doesn't just want you to have to need a miracle all the time. If you live in the ridiculous, miracles are just a way of life. And that's my challenge. That's my encouragement to you. What is a miracle? One scientist said a miracle is nothing more than a natural law that hasn't been discovered yet. Recently, in a computer magazine, they posted their word of the day. A miracle is a coincidence where God chooses to remain anonymous. Both of these definitions miss the mark. Here's why. A miracle is an unusual, significant event 
which requires the working of a supernatural agent called God, the agents of all agents. It's performed for the purpose of authenticating the message of the messenger. Now, 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 I'm going to agree with his definition there. From the, the biblical perspective, that's correct. Miracles authenticate the uh, the message of the messenger, which basically means this. The miracles that the Christian church looks to are not current-day miracles. We look for the miracles that took place that substantiated the preaching, teaching, and message of the apostles. The preaching, teaching, message of the apostles what was that they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the one true God in human flesh, and that his death on the cross was for the forgiveness of our sins. The miracles that accompany that substantiate that particular message that are all recorded for us already. God's not doing new miracles to resubstantiate what he's already substantiated. Okay, And the ultimate miracle that we're to point to is the miracle of Jesus Christ, his bodily resurrection from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So yes, I agree with his definition here. The problem is, is that Keith Kraft is under the delusion that somehow miracles are supposed to happen in his life to substantiate the message that he's preaching. But he's not supposed to be preaching his own message. He's supposed to preach, be preaching the message that we've received that, you know, in the scriptures, the apostolic message, not Keith Kraft's think-be-doo message. Therefore, we can say that a miracle is a sign that God uses to point to himself. Why, now, now, I want you to listen very carefully. Why does God want to do a miracle for us? Why does God want there to be miraculous results in our life? Not, uh, where does God say that? Hmm? Not so everything will be fine with us. Oh, Lord, I need a miracle. The purpose for the miracle is to point to him. You see, some people are seeking the miracle, but they're not seeking the miracle worker. They're, they're looking for the sign without the sign giver. So I want you to turn with me to John, the second chapter, and let's just take a, a quick study. In fact, just go to John 1. We'll, we'll just go. Okay, now I'm going to point something out. He's going to go, he's going to read part of John 1, and then he's going to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, the miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine. Watch what he does here. What, so I'm going to ask a question. Okay, when we get to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, why did John record that chapter? Now, it, he didn't record it as a chapter, but it was all part of the gospel that he recorded. What was the reason for him conveying that story? Was it to teach you how to activate the miraculous in your life by being ridiculous? Or was he, he giving you a miraculous sign that pointed to who Jesus was in order to substantiate the claims and message that, he was, that John was preaching about Jesus? You see, you see what I'm saying here? Watch what he does with this. Oh, where it all began. John 1, verse 3, all things. Everybody say all things. All things. Now, I want you to get this. Don't, don't let me start reading here and you go, okay, i got to do something now. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing that was made was made. If you got that, say, I got that. So now, by, by the time we get to John, the second chapter, we're introduced to Jesus and his public ministry for the first time. We pick up the story 
John 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Can I just tell you, if you ever have a wedding, just go ahead and invite Jesus. Can I tell all the girls that? Listen, when you're filling out those invitations in the future, just make one for Jesus. Make one for Jesus. Send him an invitation. A lot of people are trying to make holy matrimony work without inviting him. Jesus and his disciples were invited. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Everybody say do it. Now there were set six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, to the servants, he said, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, who said it was made wine? Jesus didn't say it was made wine. But when they tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, now in parentheses, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to them, Every man in the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, in other words, they got a little in them, then the inferior has brought out. But you kept the good wine for now. Verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested or revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now I'm going to stop. The passage that he just read, the verse that he just read, gives us the reason for the miracle. Okay? So the reason why John, an eyewitness to this event, records this is so that you will believe okay i'll give you a verse on that in just a second but let me read this so everyone this is verse 10 uh, john chapter 2 verse 10 everyone serves the good wine first when the people have drunk freely then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now this is the key this the first of his signs jesus did at cana and galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, there's a John later in his gospel explains why he's written all of this down. And I'm just going to ask the question up front. Do you think that the reason why John wrote these things is so that uh, you can understand the principle of learning how to be ridiculous so that you can then have miracles manifested in your life? Was that the reason why John wrote this down? Answer, yeah, not even close. Now, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, explains why John wrote everything that he wrote. Okay? Now, I'm going to... um. Back up and read verse 30. John chapter 20, verse 30 says, Now now Jesus did many other signs, these are miracles, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. The reason why John recorded this gospel and this sign in particular and punctuated it in verse 11 with the, with the note that because of this sign, Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. At the end of all of the signs that John gives in his gospel, he makes it clear and he unambiguously states that Jesus performed many signs, but these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So Keith Craft is right. Miracles are performed by God to substantiate a message, and the message that was substantiated by these miracles is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. So the purpose of these miraculous recordings is for you to believe in Jesus. They're to point you to Christ. They're to manifest his glory so that you believe in him. What's ridiculous about this sermon now you're going to see very clearly is is that that's not the point that Keith Craft is going to make. He's going to see something in this text that isn't there himself. You'll see. Watch. I love this story because this story begins to paint not just a picture of Jesus, the miracle worker, but it begins to show who Jesus really is. And in your notes, I want you to look at this one, what Josh has taught me to call the one big thought. This is the one. Okay, so now listen carefully. He's going to give us the one big thought of this sermon that apparently this text is teaching. Here we go. Big thought of the message. You know, after I preached one time, Josh said, now, Dad, I want to talk to you about your message. I said, okay, son. I said, now just remember, you're a rookie. He said, I know, Dad, but let me talk to you. I said, okay. He said, you need to have one big thought. So here's the one big thought. Josh, help me. Here's the thought. Ridiculous request open the door for miraculous results. That's what I want you to focus on for a minute. Ridiculous request open the door for miraculous results. What really that's what you got out of this text. Apparently his takeaway, the big thought is that if you have ridiculous requests, it'll lead to miraculous results. Yet the God, yet John, the author of the Gospel of John that he just read and he just read the verse that these signs were done to reveal Christ's glory, and the result of it was that the disciples believed in Jesus. And then John later, in the same gospel text, later says that all of these signs were recorded so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And now Keith Craft, his big takeaway is, is that if you have the gumption to ask a ridiculous request from God that will open the door for supernatural results in your life, the text's not about you. The miracle was recorded so that you would bend the knee and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because the ultimate sign that's presented in the Gospel of John, the quintessential one, is that Jesus Christ rose again from the grave bodily on the third day. And that the apostles, although they didn't believe it at first, Jesus appeared to them and they believed who he was. The Gospel of John was written so that you would believe Jesus, not believe that if you asked things ridiculous things from God, that somehow that would open up the door for miraculous results in your life. The text nowhere says that, nor are there any passages 
that say anything as ridiculous as what Keith Kraft just said. What happens? Jesus is invited to the wedding. He's been out of the house a few times now, but he's never done a miracle. Nobody really knows who he is. He's just Mary's boy. He's invited with his disciples. They come to this, to this wedding. They get there. They run out of wine, which in Jewish culture, it was, that was the worst thing that could happen at a wedding. It was not just very embarrassing. It was just a, it was just a socially unacceptable situation that they were in. Have you ever been in a situation that is socially, spiritually, financially unacceptable? Come on, let me see your hands. All right. So they were in an unacceptable situation. So, so we don't even know really what Mary had to do with the wedding and she just comes up and says Mary isn't the primary character in this story Jesus is as simply says to Jesus they've run out of wine now why do you think she said that because she knew something about Jesus that they didn't know she had raised him You've heard me talk about this before. Can you imagine raising the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? I don't think Jesus just started his miracles that day. I think this day it was revealed to the world. I think the miracles started a long time ago. In fact, just around the house. Mary walking and going, man, I'm having a tough day. You need some energy, mother? (laughs) Boy, I feel better. I don't feel like cleaning the house today. What would you like done? Well, I just need to clean this up and clean this up. She goes, Mom, let's close your eyes just for a minute. Open them up. That's amazing. Oh, I don't really feel like cooking today. What would you like to eat, Mom? Well, I haven't even gone to the store. Just tell me what you want. Who knows? But she knew something. And none of those uh, so-called miracles are recorded there. By the way, there is another passage later um, where Jesus' mother and brothers come to collect him because they think he's he's crazy. They think he's mad. I wonder if that just completely discredits this little illustration that he just concocted out out of his brain, which is ridiculous, by the way. That everybody else didn't. There was a reason she knew. There was a reason that she knew. And so she says, hey, they've run out of wine. He says, "What? If, look, hey, mom, listen. I, I'm, I'm just, I just wanted to come to the wedding. We're not home. I, I just want to be here, and, and, and I'm just not, I'm just not really ready for that right now. And let me tell you why I wasn't ready for that. Because he knew, if I can say it this way, what dominoes him doing miracles were going to kick over. He knew what he would have to deal with. That people wanted the miracle without wanting him." He knew what it would mean that someday he would be put on a cross because of who he was in spite of all the miracles. So he was not impressed with himself. He wasn't impressed with his ability. He wasn't impressed with any of that. He just knew what his mission was. And the truth is, he said, listen, I'm really not ready to do that right now. She turns. She didn't say anything to him. She didn't go, come on, Jesus, do it. Do it for your mother. That's what most moms would do. Come on. They don't have to know, just do it. She didn't do any of that. She just, she knows, she knows. So she turns to the servants and she says, listen, 
whatever he says to do, which I have absolutely no idea what it's going to be, but just trust me on this one. Whatever he says, do it. You know why I know that Jesus heard her tell them that? Because the Bible says he turns to him and he says, hey, go fill up the pots with water. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Ridiculous request. Open the door for miraculous results. I mean, seriously, what a complete mangling of the text. I mean, and it takes away the glory from Christ. Because the text itself so clearly says that that first sign revealed his glory and that his disciples believed in him. And now Keith Craft is resting, wrestling away the glory that belongs to Christ because this is a story about Christ so that you would believe him and turns it into some kind of cockamamie, ridiculous interpretation that somehow if you ask God for the ridiculous, it'll open the door for the miraculous, and that's the quid pro quo. God's just waiting up in heaven, waiting for you to do something ridiculous, and he can't do the miraculous until you get ridiculous enough. The Bible nowhere teaches any of this, and it's so sad to hear these people in his audience sitting there amening and thinking that they're being fed and taught the word of God when they're not. Unbelievable. How did Mary approach Jesus? Did she approach Jesus as her son or did she approach him as Lord? Let me tell you something. She approached him as Lord. Can you imagine as a mom, I want all your moms to think for just a second. She wasn't talking to him now as her son. She was talking to him now as the King of Kings and the Lord of all Lords. They've run out of wine. The message behind that was, the request was, I know you can do something about it. So literally within her They've run out of wine. Would be like me saying to God, God, I've run out of what was supposed to sustain me. And just my acknowledgement that I'm talking to him as God and that I'm expressing I've run out makes his heart run towards me. How awesome is God? Mm, No, apparently how awesome are you? I mean, because, I mean, their God is just... You know, he's powerless until you say the right words. And once you do it, oh, then he can spring into action. Yeah, boy, what an amazing little deity you are. So literally, you may not see it as a request, but it is a request. Because in your notes, it's an acknowledgement that Jesus was Lord. That he was the Lord. And then it was a request of of saying, you know what? I'm going to give up my way because she could have said, Jesus, come on. She just said, do whatever he says do. And I I want to just submit something to you for your consideration. I want you to think with me just for a minute. And especially those of you that are parents. Why is it that our children feel like they can ask us for anything. I don't know what that is. It's like my kids then and my kids now. They still don't mind asking me. And they're adults. But I can remember one time, you know, we went to Walmart, and every time I'd go to Walmart, my parents, I'm talking to the parents now, I don't know how it was with you, but every time we, we, we would go to a store, every aisle we walked down, they saw something they could not live without. No, I mean, it's true. It's like, I got to have that. I said, you already have 113 of those. Yeah, but this one is going to change everything. 
So one time we're in Walmart. Little Keela, who's on the front row right here, said, The Lion King, the movie had just come out. She said, Oh, Daddy. I'm just telling you, she was the sweetest little thing. She goes, Oh, Daddy, look. Look at this. And it was little Simba, the, the little lion. She goes, Look, isn't he just beautiful? I said, He sure is, Keela. She goes, Listen to this. She hits a button, and Simba speaks in his movie voice. We'll always be together. She goes, isn't that wonderful? I said, yeah, but she goes, can I have Simba? I said, now, Keela, listen, baby. We're not in Walmart to do that right now. I just had to come in here for a minute. You came over to the toy aisle, and but we just need to go. So she goes like this with little Simba. She hits the button. We'll always be together. And she goes, no, we won't. I said, bring Simba. Come on, let's go. I mean, did you get Simba that day? She got Simba that day. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. When she did that and... What do I say? Why can we go to God like that? Because we know who he is. That's why. It can seem so ridiculous. We can be pushing all kind of buttons. God doesn't even care about it. He just appreciates the fact that you know that he's God and he can do something about whatever you need something done about. And the reality is, is that, that our ridiculous requests are okay with God. I want to free you to ask God for ridiculous stuff. Some of the men in this room know the story about this building that's been on this wall now since 2000. Now we're going to preach about ourselves some more. 2007, that's how long that picture's been up there. The picture's finally becoming a reality. But in 1992, when Dick Mills gave me a word, and I'm 32 years old, and I'm just a traveling man, not having to raise money, not having to build a church, not having to do any of that stuff, just doing stuff for God, not a real worry in the world. And this prophet stands up and he says, God's going to tell you to do some crazy things. Let me give you the interpretation. Some ridiculous things at ridiculous times in history. And he's going to give you the ridiculous resources to do it. Can I tell you that when you make ridiculous requests on God... He says, that's what I'm waiting on. Because guess what? This building being built in the worst economy in American history has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with you. We have ridiculously requested of God. God, you are God. He's bringing about miraculous results. And all glory and all honor be to him in Jesus' name. This is just a picture of it. But in your own life, it's the same way. You have to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. You have to give way to his way. You have to do whatever it is that he says do. And then here's the miraculous results part. I love this. What do those clay pots represent? Each one of us. Empty. What was supposed to run out, what, what was supposed to not run out, ran out. And then Jesus speaks. Now watch this. He speaks and says, fill it up with what I say fill it up with. And he says water. He could have just made wine just like that. 
But it's a picture for us to understand that when God speaks, it creates a flow in our life. And the Bible says that out of us will come rivers of living water. Why is that? Because the Word of God is His presence. And it's His presence that fills up our clay pots. And all of a sudden, what was empty and what was dry and what was barren becomes filled up. And not- Notice he's now allegorizing the clay pots. Not just filled up, but useful for what God put us on the earth to be useful for. Miraculous results. God makes the ordinary extraordinary. That's what he does. God makes the impossible possible. God shows that his way is the blessed way. Apparently, God doesn't make the incoherent coherent. When I wrote that word blessed, Sheila goes, are you sure that's a word? I said, that's a combination of two words, baby. The blessed way is always the best way. So we'll just call it the blessed way. I also did a little etymology on the word blessed and found out that that spelling of blessed is a verb when you use it as an action. It's also a past participle. It means it's already been done. God shows that his way is the blessed way because it always has been, it is, and it always will be. Come on. It always will be. And it'll take us to the top. I want you to bow your head with me, please, just for a moment. Man. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm not going to let Keith Kraft pray for us. Um, Well, there you go. Um, Truly a ridiculous sermon. Truly a ridiculous sermon. All about them i mean there he he, t- he literally took a passage that was written to point us to christ so that we would believe and trust in him a, a miracle that jesus did was recorded so that we would believe and trust in christ be brought to repentance and the forgiveness of our sins and uh, he read the verse but nothing registered in his mind to tell him that's the key right there and yet the passage itself said that was the key and uh, and then he turned around and came up with some bizarre interpretation about Mary demonstrated that when you ask the ridiculous, that that'll open up the door for the supernatural. Yet there's no verse in the Bible that says anything like that. And and, and then he allegorized the clay pots and and uh, oh man, well yeah, the sermon was truly ridiculous. And the sad thing about it is by pointing our attention away from Christ and why the gospel writer, the Apostle John, wrote that for us so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. By pointing us away from the real reason why the Apostle recorded that um, miracle and making it all about himself, Keith Craft is in danger of the fires of hell. Because he's not preaching the biblical gospel. He's not abiding in Christ. He's not correctly handling God's word. He's not guarding the word of God. He's twisting it and mangling it to his own destruction and the destruction of his listeners. That's the sad thing about it. And while people were hearing it, they were hooping and hollering and giving themselves a big yuck and a high five and an amen. And claiming that they were given all the glory to God, but yet their, their, the glory was really for them because they were the ones who applied this ridiculous theology about ridiculousness. And so sad. Pray for them. Because 
The worst thing that can happen now is that they're getting their building and they're going to sit there and claim that's a miracle that proves that what Keith Kraft is preaching is really from the word of God when it, it isn't. Because the scriptures are all about Christ. The scriptures are all about Jesus. Let me read to you a story from the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at John chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. Both of them were running together. But when the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed." For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the scripture, the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had been lain, one, of, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni! which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, We have seen the Lord. He said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks and the nails, the place my and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand on his side, I will never believe. I want to point something out here. Thomas is doing the exact opposite of what Keith Kraft said was necessary before the supernatural could be released, right? He's not believing. He's not asking for the ridiculous. In fact, he's saying he's not going to believe at all. 
That's why he's called the Doubting Thomas. But Jesus, well, let's, you'll see what happens anyway. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands, and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Thomas confesses Jesus to be Lord and God. Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The text is about Jesus. The miracles are recorded for you to substantiate the message that he preached, that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he's the Messiah, come to take away the sin of the world. He's the Messiah who calls you to repent of your wickedness and to be forgiven and to have faith and trust in him. And like Thomas Confess of Jesus, ha kurios mu kai ha theos mu. You are my Lord and my God. This, these texts were not written for you to somehow self-actualize your particular delusions of grandeur or, or to give you some principle that you can apply so that you can release the miraculous in your life by being ridiculous. It's so sad that people are eating this up. It's like a sick, sick, sick satanic trick that's being played, played on them. Here they believe they're hearing the word of God, that they're following the principles laid out in the scriptures. Oh, God wants me to be ridiculous. I assure you that if they die believing this false gospel and this false doctrine, Satan is going to be sitting there laughing his head off, going, you are such a fool. Do you really think the great and holy God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has is going to bless your life because you were obedient to being ridiculous? Jesus will say, to hell with you. Depart from me, I never knew you. Into the fire, the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what's at stake here. That's why false doctrine is so bad. Because it sends people to hell. All the while they think they are following Jesus. All the while they think that they're applying biblical principles. All the while they think that they are Christian. But the religion that they believe is all about them. Jesus is just there as an example. Jesus is the bait on the hook used by the devil to snare these people. Pray that God opens their eyes. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. 
That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. The uh, Join Our Crew button, uh, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. And the Donate button allows you to make a one-time contribution to support this important radio outreach. Of course, if you'd like to contribute the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me, my friend, on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Believe that. Trust that. Amen. Amen.